Successful people learn how to make their mind work for them. I'm David Nagel, and this is the Successful Mind Podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us what your what your background is. Oh yes, well, I'm as you said, I'm a I'm a professor in clinical psychology. Um, I've always been lecturing on uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, um, but also on a process of mass formation in society. Mass formation, which is a specific kind of group dynamic. Um, and before that, I was also involved in statistics. I also have a master in statistics. And um, I actually started my academic career uh, investigating the quality of scientific research, of academic research. And I published a small book about that uh, a few years ago, uh, The Pursuit of Psychology and and, uh, The Pursuit of Objectivity and Psychology, in which I I described the so-called replication crisis in the sciences. In 2005, when I was was doing my PhD, it became clear that most academic or, or a lot of academic research is seriously flawed, that there are many mistakes in scientific research, many um, uh, erroneous and forced conclusion drawing, and also much more fraud than uh, we actually knew before. And in the end, it turns out that over 85% of the published studies, for instance, in the medical sciences, are radically flawed. Uh, John Ioannidis wrote a wonderful paper about that. And the title of that paper was Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Very interesting phenomenon uh, that we maybe still underestimate. We all rely on science. We all rely on scientific papers. We all believe that um, these papers offer us objective information, but it turns out upon upon closer examination that this is uh, not the case at all, that that the majority of the papers uh, is flawed. And um, I have been studying this for, I have been studying this for, for, for over 10 years. And when the Corona crisis started, I immediately started to consider the, the figures and the statistics and the mathematical models that were used. And I immediately had the feeling that uh, also the corona statistics, just like the other statistics I had been investigating before, uh, were also wrong in this respect that they were dramatically overestimating the dangerousness, the dangerousness of the virus. Yeah. And um, by the end of May 2020, for me, this was actually proven beyond doubt, because at that moment, it turned out that all the predictions made on the basis of the mathematical models of uh, Imperial College, for instance, the, the, the most important mathematical models used in the beginning of the crisis, that they all indeed dramatically had dramatically overestimated the dangerousness of the virus. For instance, in a small country such as Sweden, these models predicted that about 80,000 people would die if the, if the country didn't go into lockdown. And the country didn't go into lockdown. And uh, by the end of May 2020, about 6,000 people died of COVID in Sweden. And these 6,000 
this figure of 6,000 was even reached only after what I call an enthusiastic counting of the of the of the of the number of people um, dying from COVID. So, uh, and then at that moment, um, I, I first started to to try to show people that there was something wrong with the statistics and that we had uh, we had been overestimating the mortality of the virus. Yes. But I soon experienced something that I had been experiencing before in my career. Namely, that even if you confront people with clear-cut proof that uh, the narratives they believe in are wrong, even then, most people won't change their mind. And that had been the reason why, some years before the corona crisis, I started to be interested in, a, in the phenomenon of mass formation, which is a phenomenon uh, that explains why people stick to absurd beliefs and absurd information, radically wrong information, under certain circumstances. And also during the corona crisis, I had a feeling that what we were dealing with in society was such a large-scale phenomenon of mass formation, which is, a which is a specific kind of group formation. A specific kind of group formation, which is also involved in the emergence of so-called totalitarian states. Hmm. A uh, phenomenon they also have been studying. Uh, that, that, that is, and that's different than a dictatorship, correct? It's radically different than a dictatorship. And the, 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 my last book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, is all about the emergence of totalitarian states. And uh, indeed, as you said, as you just remarked, a totalitarian state is something radically different than a classical dictatorship. A classical dictatorship is a is based on a very simple, primitive psychological mechanism uh, in which the, the population is just scared of a small group with a, uh, the, the so-called dictatorial regime, okay. uh, just because this small group seems to have uh, a huge aggressive potential. And that's the reason why people just accept that this small group imposes um, in a one-sided way it's um a social contract to society and a, a totalitarian state something completely different happens at the psychological level and a totalitarian state a totalitarian state starts with the emergence of a mass formation in society that means uh, that a kind of uh, 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 a substantial part of the population, usually about 20, 25, 30%, starts to believe fanatically in a certain narrative or in a certain ideology. Right. And in the end, believes so fanatically in it that this part of the population starts to transgress all kinds of ethical rules, ethical principles. Um, and is this phenomenon of mass formation uh, exists as long as mankind exists. Uh, but you also say that we're, we're really only seeing it in the 20th century. Since the 20th century, is a new phenomenon that we're experiencing? No, 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 no. The phenomenon of mass formation uh, is as old as, uh, uh, as mankind itself. Oh, okay. For instance, the Crusades, the Crusades or the witch hunts or the French Revolution are all typical examples of mass formation. But throughout the last few hundred centuries, the phenomenon of mass formation became increasingly strong. And uh, <clears throat> that's why, that's exactly why um, 
by the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, mass formation became so strong and lasted and lasted so long that the masses, led by a few leaders, could seize control and could control the state system. And in this way, a new kind of state emerged, the so-called totalitarian state. People often forgot, forget that, that there were no totalitarian states before the beginning of the 20th century. There well, that's, were the, that's the new part. There were classical dictatorships, but there were no totalitarian states. And the, and the reason was that uh, first in the, in the beginning of the 20th century, the masses became so strong that they could take over control over the state and, and, and lead to the emergence of a totally new kind of state. Like if you compare it to a classical dictatorship, then there are important differences. For instance, um, in a, in a, totalitarian, uh, a classical dictatorship typically controls the public space and the political space. But a totalitarian state controls political space, public space, and private life, and private space. And the reason is, the reason is that a totalitarian state, to use the words of Hannah Arendt, um, has a huge secret police, namely this part of the population that fanatically believes, the masses, this part of the population that fanatically believes in the state narrative or in the state ideology, and who is willing to report everyone, even their closest family members, to the state if they feel or if they think that these family members um, are not loyal enough to the to the state. So they so, believe themselves. Yeah, yes, they, they of course they believe themselves. And the also a very important difference is that uh, in a classical dictatorship, the point of gravity of the system is always in the elite, meaning that if you destroy or if you eliminate a part of the elite, usually the, the classical dictatorship will collapse. But if you eliminate a part of the elite in a totalitarian state, nothing will happen. The system will continue as if nothing happened, just because the point of gravity is in the masses. It's, it's, in, it's in the mass. It's in this part of the population that is, that is in the grip of this ideology or, the, or this narrative. Um, of course, the elite plays an important role in a totalitarian state, but the point of gravity is situated in the masses. And that explains why it didn't it doesn't collapse. Why, why for instance, Stalin, um, who led the first uh, totalitarian state in history, uh, the, uh, the Soviet Union, yeah. or this, why Stalin could perfectly eliminate 60% of his own communist party, the system did not collapse. It just continued, just because this phenomenon of, ma phenomenon of mass formation. So this phenomenon of mass formation is truly crucial to understand because we see it again now. And we are at risk now, we are at risk of the emergence of a new kind of totalitarianism, which is um, not a fascist totalitarianism, but a technocratic totalitarianism. Something Hannah Arendt, who wrote one of the most important books on totalitarianism, uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism, yes. was the title of the book. Hannah Arendt warned us for this new kind of totalitarianism. She warned us already in 1951 that after Stalinism or the Soviet Union and uh, uh, Nazi Germany, who were the two 
most typical examples of totalitarian states, they were not the same. Uh, uh, Stalinism or the Soviet Union was much, much, much more totalitarian than, sure. uh, than Nazi Germany. But um, Hannah Arendt warned us already that after the fall of Nazism and Stalinism, we would witness the emergence of a new kind of totalitarianism. And she said or in 2005 and in, uh, 1951 already that this new kind of totalitarianism would not be led by gang leaders such as Stalin and Hitler, but by dull bureaucrats and technocrats. And I've often wondered how she could know that uh, in yeah. 1951 already, but pro it was probably just because she knew that the um, zeitgeist, the, 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 the dominant discourse in society would evolve in a direction of um, a dull technological, technocratic view on man and the world. And that was probably the reason why she, why she knew already that the new totalitarianism would be technocratic in nature and would, and would be led by so-called technical experts. And I believe that now, in particular since the corona crisis, but actually already since the beginning of the, of the war on terror and, and, the, and, 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 the, and the entire discourse on climate change, um, we are going in the direction of a society in which, uh, which is strictly technologically controlled in which the masses ask even big for more technological control uh, and in which um, technical experts will take over the lead of a society from democratically elected politicians. That's what we are at risk for. And that's why I thought it was so important that we understand the mechanisms at work because I believe that once we really understand how mass formation works, we also understand what we can do about it and what we definitely shouldn't do. And this will be decisive. If we start from the wrong analysis, we will be destroyed. The people who do not go along with the system will be destroyed. If we start- well, let, me a, let, me, let me ask a question really quick. What is it in that percentage of people that that are uh, symptomatic of this mass formation, what is it in their in their psychology that makes them so susceptible to this? Have, do we know what that is? It's hard to tell, but one thing is for sure, namely that the population has to be in a very specific psychological state, yeah, in order for mass formation, large scale mass formation, to emerge. To emerge, so understanding this, uh, cycle, the, the, the the specific conditions, which lead to mass formation, is crucial, I think, and the most central condition. Always is that a lot of people have to feel socially disconnected, have to feel disconnected from their natural and their social environment. That's the the most crucial precondition, and. That actually, like we've seen throughout the last two or three centuries, how the number of people who felt lonely, who felt disconnected from their environment, increased, increased, increased uh, time and time again. And that had everything to do, I believe, that's what I explain in the first five chapters of my book, uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. That's the reason, that's, that's the, 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 the root cause the root of... Cause. 
the, the root cause of, of, the, of the fact that um, the number of lonely people uh, increased throughout the last few hundred years. And so was, even with technology, the way that it is, we're creating more yes. lonely people than ever yes. before. It has everything to do with the so-called mechanistic view on men in the world. Throughout the last centuries, uh, the mechanistic view on the world became dominant. That means uh, we all started to believe that the, that the entire universe and everything uh, in it uh, uh, actually is a kind of a material uh, system, a set of molecules and atoms that are all interacting with each other according to the laws of mechanics, and that can be described perfectly in a rational way. That's what that's that's the way in which we started to view man in the world, and uh, that in itself isolates people. That's the way of thinking. I explain it in my book. Isolates people from their environment and also led to excessive industrialization industrialization of the world and also excessive use of technology. And it's very clear that it is exactly the level of technology use and the level of industrialization that is almost perfectly correlated with the number of people feeling dis disconnected from their environment. I give several examples in my book, uh, all showing in, in detail uh, how technology, how industrialization leads at a psychological level to uh, uh, disconnection and to and to the fact that people stop resonating with the things around them. That's just crucial to understand because once you understand that, once you understand that it is this mechanistic thinking, the industrialization of the world, the use of technology that leads to, uh, to, to, to loneliness and to lack of connection with the environment, then you also understand why throughout the last centuries the phenomenon of mass formation became stronger and why um, we, we, we were confronted with the emergence of totalitarian states. There is a straightforward connection between the mechanization of the world and the concentration camps. And that's what my book explains. Um, you know, one of the things that really surprised me about this, and, and I actually, I interviewed uh, Dr. Brett Weinstein on my podcast, and I asked him this question specifically, was this does not, it doesn't seem to matter the intelligence, the intelligence of the individual that is going through this process. Because I, I specifically said, why are there so many really intelligent leaders out there that are totally sucked into this? And they do not see that they're that they're suffering from it. And he and he that's he mentioned you. He said because he believes what you were what you were talking about as far as the mass formation. So it it's like it doesn't even matter that a person is intelligent or educated or their position in society. They're based on their own psychological wellness. They're susceptible to this. No, yes, intelligence has nothing to do with it, and uh, and and even more. Um, well, we should distinguish intelligence and the level of education, but, sure. but intelligence has nothing to do with it. And even more, uh, the higher the level of education, the more susceptible people are from mass formation. Really? And, and you can understand that perfectly as soon as you understand the mechanism of mass formation. So maybe you can explain it in a concise way in a nutshell. Okay. Is that okay? Or yeah, yeah, shall yes, I? yes, well, yes, just, oh, Okay, everything starts with this disconnection and this loneliness. One, and once people feel disconnected and lonely, they will typically experience a lack of meaning making. That's typical because human beings are social beings and uh, they experience meaning and purpose in life if they see that their existence has an effect on the other. And if the, if the relationship, the bond with the other deteriorates, they will automatically 
start to deal, start to be confronted with experiences of lack of meaning making, usually not knowing what the connection between the two, the two is. So, but, um, and then once these people, once people, once, once uh, uh, someone feels lonely and is confronted with a lack of meaning making, he will typically experience, be confronted with so-called free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression. That means anxiety, frustration, and aggression that is not connected to a mental representation. Or, in simpler words, anxiety, people will feel anxious, frustrated, and aggressive without knowing what they feel anxious, frustrated, and aggressive for. And that's an extremely aversive mental state. And because if you feel anxious and you don't know what you feel anxious for, you have the feeling of being completely out of control. You just don't know how to protect yourself from anxiety, from your anxiety, because you don't know what you're anxious for. And just before the Corona crisis, a maximum number of people were in this state. Over 30% of the population reported um, that they had no meaningful, no single meaning, no, no, that, that had no meaningful relationship at, relationships at all, and that they only connected to other people through the internet, which is not the same at all as a real connection. Right. Over 60% of the people reported that they considered their job to be a, a job without meaning, a so-called bullshit job. And over 20% of the population worldwide was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. So that shows you a little bit. Uh, the extent of the, of, the, of the problem and the fact shows you the fact that these preconditions for mass formation were typically were really fulfilled just before the corona crisis and then if people are in this state of uh, free-floating anxiety lack of meaning making a lack of connection then something very typical might happen which is the start of the, of the phenomenon of mass formation if under these conditions a narrative is distributed disseminated through the mass media indicating an object of anxiety and at the same time, providing a strategy to deal with, us, with that object of anxiety, all this freely floating anxiety might connect to the object of anxiety, and there might be a huge willingness to participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, even if the strategy is utterly absurd. And that is the first step of every mass formation, whether we, we are talking about the Crusades or about the witch hunts or about the French Revolution, or about the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, we always see the same in a, in a state of mental um, uh, mental disconnectedness, uh, mental anxiety, and so on. Someone provides an object of anxiety and a strategy to deal with it. For instance, the concentration camps to deal with the Jews or the Crusades to deal with the right. Muslims or no matter what, the witch hunts to deal with the witches or the lockdowns to deal with the virus. Right. Uh, that's the first step. All the anxiety connects to the object of anxiety. People are participating in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. That's the first advantage, of course. In this way, people have the feeling that they can control their anxiety and that they can direct all their frustration and aggression at the object of anxiety. And then, in a second step, something even more basic and more important happens. Because many people at the same time participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, people feel connected again. They feel connected again. They fight this collective heroic battle with the virus. But 
there is one major problem. And that is that this new connection, this, the, this new social group is a group, is not a group that is formed because individuals develop a new social bond with other individuals. No, it is a social group that is formed because every individual separately is connected with the collective. That means that the solidarity in a mass is not a solidarity between individuals. It's always a solidarity between the individual and the collective. And, the collective. and we could say even more, the longer the process of mass formation lasts, the more energy, psychological energy, is sucked away from the social bonds between the individuals and is invested in the bond between the individuals and the collective. That means that, in the end, people show a maximal loyalty towards the collective and a minimal loyalty towards each other. And that explains exactly why every totalitarian state, which is always based on mass formation, ultimately ends in a radically paranoid atmosphere in which individuals are willing to report themselves, uh, each other to the state. I, I, I've been talking with a woman from Iran a few weeks ago, Shoref Eshtali, and there's a conversation available on the internet. And she told me that she was in Iran during the revolution in 1979, and which was the, the beginning of a large-scale process of mass formation and also uh, the, the emergence of a totalitarian state. And she told me that she has seen with her own eyes how a mother reported her son to the state and how she hung the rope around his neck just before he was hung and how she claimed to be a heroine for that. And that's typical. That's typical. In a totalitarian state, people typically commit cruelties towards everyone who doesn't go along with the masses as if it is an ethical duty. That's one of the major characteristics of every mass formation. People become radically blind. They become radically willing to sacrifice themselves, very typical, and also they become radically willing to sacrifice each other if they think that it is important for the collective. And this phenomenon is just incredibly strong, incredibly strong, because it is exactly the same. It is identical to hypnosis. It's yeah. a form of hypnosis. Technically speaking, it is a form of hypnosis. In a, in a, in a hypnotic procedure, a hypnotist just draws away the attention from the environment of someone else mm -hmm. and then focuses all the attention on one small point for instance, uh, an object that is moving on a, on a chain. And then once this happened, it is as if the rest of reality doesn't exist anymore for the hypnotized person. And the strength of this mechanism is incredible. For instance, a simple hypnotic procedure, I've seen this with my own eyes, is sufficient to make someone so insensitive to pain that a surgeon can perfectly perform an, an, uh, an operation in which he cuts through the skin, through the flesh, even straight through the breastbone to perform an open heart operation. And the patient just won't notice it. And the procedure, the hypnotic procedure is really simple. It's basic, takes a few minutes. And exactly the same happens in a mass formation, exactly the same. There is first, there is the first step 
happens automatically, spontaneously. So uh, people are feeling uh, progressively more disconnected, feel more lonely, their attention is uh, withdrawn from the environment. And then suddenly, through the mass media, this narrative is distributed, indicating an object of anxiety, and all the psychological energy, all the attention is focused on this one point. And consequently, the rest of reality seems not to exist anymore. Just like people suddenly only focused on the corona victims, and they seem to be completely unaware of the fact that the corona measures themselves would also claim a lot of victims, even much more than the coronavirus could claim. But that was outside the narrow focus of attention of the world population. And so the world population just didn't notice it anymore. And they bought into a narrative which would uh, take so many individual interests away, which, which would damage them so much. And then that's just like someone under hypnosis. People just didn't notice it anymore. And right. the, no matter how absurd the narrative became, people continue to buy into it just because the real reason why people buy into the narrative is not because they think the narrative is true or right. The real reason why people buy into the narrative is because it leads to this new social bond, because it creates these symptomatic psychological advantages. And that mechanism will continue indeed if you don't watch out until people start to destroy everyone who doesn't go along with them and until people in the end destroy themselves. And it's also the, the need for them to, to, to associate meaning to something, correct? Like that's yes. a very powerful mechanism in, in this whole thing. It's giving Absolutely. them a meaning where they don't have any meaning. Absolutely. It, 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 it provides them with a new kind of meaning making, with a new kind of a, a purpose in life. Yes, definitely. I mean, for the longest time, the, the whatever news channel you would put on, it was the death count, right? You know, constantly just watching the numbers of, of the people that were supposedly dying from COVID going up and up and up in every state. And people were comparing this state to that state and this country to that country. And everybody was, like you said, hyper-focused on this one point. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's typical. Like uh, uh, people in a mass formation, and that holds for every mass formation, small scale, large scale, uh, very structures or not structured, doesn't matter. People in a mass formation are never sensitive for rational argumentation. But they are sensitive for constantly repeated emotional messaging and also for visual clues, uh, like, like strong uh, visual images and also for numbers in particular, when they are represented in a visual way, way in graphs or, 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 or visual statistics. Okay. And that, 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 well, that, that's the problem, of course. And you, you can never uh, convince someone who is in a mass formation with rational argumentation because of the mechanism that I just explained. Once people's attention is focused, once all people's psychological energy is connected to a very small part of reality, for instance, the virus and the measures to, to fight the virus, then Every time you, you want to show people that this narrative is absurd in some respects, you will have to use arguments that use mental representations that yeah. are outside of this narrow focus of attention. For instance, the victims claimed by the, by the corona measures. But these people will hear what you say, but your words and the arguments you use will not be invested with psychological energy and hence they will have no psychological weight. They will have no impact. They will have no impact at all. And that's exactly why 
even highly intelligent people that are in the grip of mass formation just won't be able to see what you try to show them. They won't be able to see what you try to show them. Simply, you could compare it with a computer. No matter how powerful the processor of a computer is, it can never take into account information that is not in the computer system, of course. Sure. And that's exactly what happens when someone is in mass formation. The only information that is in the computer system is just the information that is in line with this absurd narrative. And all the rest of the information, no matter how important it could be or how um, powerful it would be when someone is awake, when someone is in a mass formation, it will have simply have no impact. And whether someone is extremely intelligent or not intelligent at all, right, won't make a difference. And the, the, a lot of the educated people are scientists and they're trained in the scientific process, but they're foregoing that process because they're more psychologically attached to the meaning that they're gaining from whatever the situation is, than for actually finding the truth. And I mean, we started off the conversation with you talking about the studies that you have that you have done where you found that the papers were not even accurate in the scientific community um, based on the way that they're supposed to be processed, but in with some other motivation behind it. Yes. Yes, well, Yes, the, the academic world was was is struggling with, with huge problems, I believe. And yeah. the problem is like, you know, I think the problem is typical for every discourse, every view on man in the world that became the dominant view on man in the world. We see, we've seen that in the beginning, like in the beginning of the 16th century, when uh, science first emerged in our society science was the discourse of a minority through which a minority went against the dom a dominant view of men in the world the religious uh, institutionalized dogmatic religion sure. and at that moment science was very fruitful and it was like a, a a kind of discourse that 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 revealed something to the world a kind of discourse through which people put aside all their um dogmas and prejudices and and listen to the world in a new and open-minded way but as science became the dominant discourse itself it started to lose its qualities as a as truth speaking as truth speech and it became dogma and prejudice itself people started to be convinced on the beforehand that um that um uh, the scientific view on the world was the right view on the man in the world. Yeah. And also, once a discourse becomes a dominant discourse, once uh, a theory, for instance, uh, uh, is believed by the majority of the people, it becomes the privileged instrument to manipulate people to uh, be successful in, 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 in society, to, uh, to sell uh, your products in a society too. Right. It, it, it becomes a discourse that can be used to manipulate the population. And that's what typically happens with every discourse that becomes a dominant discourse. It loses its qualities as truths uh, of truth speech. And that's also what happened in science. We could, can clearly see that science uh, is, is losing all its good qualities while it becomes more dominant in our society. And in the beginning of the 20th century, 
uh, 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 the academic research was indeed facing huge, dramatic problems, uh, which were very well described by, uh, to a certain extent, by myself in, in, in the book I refer to, but also to uh, by uh, even much more, of course, by people such as uh, John Ioannidis, uh, yeah. who, uh, who who wrote a few wonderful papers about this problem, which all show that uh, the, uh, the academic world was in a terrible state um, uh, before the corona crisis. And what surfaced in the corona crisis was actually more of the same problem, but then uh, at a much more important level and with much, much, much more consequences for society, dramatic consequences for society. Where do you, so in this, in this process, like um, COVID is kind of quieting down, but we have the war with Russia and Ukraine amping up. Um, we have the, the idea of the minister or ministry of truth in the United States that they're trying to create in the government and actually criminalize people talking about the truth, where they can only dictate what the truth is. And you, you talk about in your book that all of these totalitarian regimes eventually destroy themselves. Where do you see us as in the process of the growth of this and the, the potential of its, of its own self-destruction? Are we getting worse or better? Where are we? Oh, well, it's hard to say. Um, I think just we'll probably go in the wrong direction for for a while, for a few more years. But uh, that's, that's exactly why it is so crucial that we have to understand what we have to do. When you understand the basic mechanism at work, namely the, the mechanism of mass formation, when you understand that, that, that it is a kind of hypnosis, then you also know that this phenomenon is created by the voice of, of, of certain people who articulate um, the hypnotizing narrative in public space. Okay. And once you understand that, you also understand that it is quintessential of crucial importance uh, that the dissonant voice also continues to speak out because uh, that's very clear. It is at the moment the dissonant voice, the, the voice of the people who do not agree with the narrative, usually is not capable of waking up the masses. That's something that is already described by Gustave Le Bon in the 19th century. He said already like when the masses, when a mass emerges, there are always people who do not go along with it. And these people typically try to show the people in the mass that, that there is something wrong with what they believe in. And usually yes. they won't be able to wake up the masses. But, and that's crucial, but Gustave Le Bon said in the 19th century already that these people might not be able to wake up the masses, but that, that doesn't mean that their speech has no effect. To the contrary, he says, when the people who do not go along with the masses continue to speak out, they will prevent that the mass formation, the mass hypnosis becomes so deep that the masses start to commit atrocities because that's what they typically do at the end right. of the process. And so it's crucial to continue to speak out. And we've, history has shown us that it is exactly at the moment that the opposition, the resistance stops to speak out, that the cruelties start. That happened in 1930 in the United, in um, the Soviet Union and, the, and around 1925 in Nazi Germany. In both countries, the opposition stopped to speak out. They chose to go underground. And within a period of six months to one year, the destruction campaign started. Destruction campaigns that first addressed everyone who didn't go along in the narrative or who couldn't go along in the narrative for certain reasons. And then after a while, 
in particular in the Soviet Union, the destruction campaigns started just to hit everyone. Nobody knew anymore why certain groups in society were suddenly indicated as the next ones to be uh, to be deported to uh, to the concentration camps. But it happened, and in the end, tens of millions of people were people were destroyed without anybody knowing why. So, but the crucial point is this: that it's in a classical dictatorship, it can be wise or uh, and good to go underground uh, uh, and stop speaking out in public space. But if you do so in a totalitarian state, you 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 usually will start to destroy yourself <laughs> because at that moment the masses and the leaders become so convinced that uh, they should impose their narrative and their ideology to society that they think is justified to start to destroy everyone who doesn't go along with them that's a, typically what happens that's typically what happens in the emergence of a totalitarian state so it's most the most crucial thing is that we continue to speak out we have to do so in a quiet way not trying to convince the other people because right. that that won't work and it will make them angry but just claiming our right to articulate our own opinion in public space and in that way you will have the most important effect we will just make sure that people continue to feel that okay not everyone agrees with us maybe some people think differently maybe you are not absolutely right and so on then we will constantly disturb the process of mass formation that is going on and that's just that's just uh um maybe that's why the idea of free speech is starting to be attacked so radically you know they're, they're they're moving from from the idea of uh naming so-called free speakers racists or or you know whatever disinformation to now the language is changing to we should arrest those people right uh, so anybody that's speaking out should now be arrested because i think they're it appears like they're getting very frustrated with the fact that they're not stopping it their efforts to to have squashed it seem to be failing more and more people seem to, to be standing up but to, to the point that you make their language is starting to become more aggressive towards those individuals that are actually that are actually speaking yes definitely and um we we shouldn't we shouldn't shut up for that we should continue to speak out believe me believe me even if they do arrest people and they do already arrest some people here and there but even then yes uh, they just won't make it yes they they, they they just won't make it you know nobody has ever won a war without being prepared to to lose something for it uh and right. then we have to be prepared to lose something for it right but but we have just have to be aware of the fact that whether or not whether we are going whether we are going along with the narrative or go against it yes that's so typical for a totalitarian state you are never safe you're never safe that's the the the, the communist leaders uh, maybe were more at risk of being killed uh, and eliminated by stalin than the other people so sure. we just just have to continue to speak out that's the first and most important thing in a, in a quiet way not because we are convinced that we are the only ones uh, uh who know the absolute truth no just starting from the principle that okay to the best of my opinion to the best of my capabilities that's how i think about the situation and that's and i claim the right to just articulate what i think and that's the right attitude 
And that's the most fruitful and the most important atti- uh, uh, thing we can do. Um, uh, and at the same time, we will, this is in, in many, this is important in many respects, I think. Um, not well, only- I agree. That's why I wanted you, to, I wanted to have you on because um, I think your message is, is, is vitally important. Of course, you know, as you're explaining this, it also helps me understand some of my frustrations as as to why I was looking at so many people and and being very confused as to why they were not seeing what they were not seeing, not realizing that basically they're hypnotized by a message for various different reasons, and they become ideologically locked into that narrative. It becomes almost impossible to to break them out. Um, but I wanted to help get your message out to as many people as I possibly can to be part of the solution and not the problem. Of course, of course, and in the end, I believe that, well, in the end, just as you said, um, a totalitarian system always destroys itself. That's the only cynical advantage. How does that uh, happen, but, by but, the way? But, How but do the they only, destroy themselves? Yes, but the only thing we have to make sure is that it destroys itself before it destroys us. And 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 and, and it's just, there is the most first and most important principle we have to follow to, to follow is just to continue to speak out. And in the long run, in the long run, uh, or in the longer run, or, or at, the, at the more elementary level, at the more basic level, right. you have to get rid of this mechanist, rationalist view on men in the world. Because exactly that's the root cause of everything. It's, it's this rationalist view on men in the world, this yeah. mechanist view, materialist view on men in the world that led to industrialization excessive because there's nothing wrong with a certain level of mechanization and use of technology sure. it is the excessive nature of it that creates this disconnectedness this loneliness and then that leads in its turn to mass formation and and in it and mass formation in its turn and its turn leads to totalitarianism so if we want to um to really overcome the problem the problem of totalitarianism then we will have to find a solution for this mechanist view on man of the world and that's so typical Uh, that the strange thing is that everybody believes that this mechanist view on man and the world, this idea that the entire universe uh, can be described in mechanist terms and and can be understood in a completely rational way, is is, is the scientific view on man and the world. But the strange thing is that all major scientists um, uh, reported or, or, or in the end concluded that this view on man and the world is extremely limited. And that a mist, for instance, a mystical view on men in the world should be preferred above this uh, mechanist view on men in the world. I, I have I have experiences very good in my own life. Uh, when I was 16 years old, and uh, I, I, I truly also believed in the rationalist view on men in the world. Yeah. And and it took me until I was 35 years old to suddenly start realizing that the world around me, in the end and essentially is irrational in nature. And I started to understand that, uh, uh, for instance, by uh, learning about systems theory, about complex dynamical systems theory, which paradoxically shows in a strictly rational way, in a mathematical way, that complex dynamical systems, which is about everything in nature, are strictly irrational. They literally behave as irrational numbers in mathematics. And once I started to understand that, it was as if my mind opened up, literally. I believe that when we 
think in a rational way, when we try to reduce everything to logical thinking and logical ideas, we connect the one logical idea to the other. And in this way, we create like a closed system, which prevents us from resonating and connecting to the essence of the things around us. And almost literally, once you become aware of the fact that all logical understanding is limited, that it can never grasp the essence of the things around us, all these logical ideas open up and the strings inside ourselves can literally start to resonate with the eternal music of the things around us. And I experienced that in my own life. And I was very happy to see that many of the great scientists describe the phenomenon in almost the same way. For instance, René Tom, one of the most important mathematicians of the 20th century and the founder, one of the founders of systems theory, said this part of reality that can, that can be understood in a rational way is very limited. And the rest of reality, he said, can only be known by empathically resonating with it. Yeah. And Niels Bohr also said, Niels Bohr, the famous physicist who won the Nobel Prize for his uh, research in uh, elementary particles and atoms, the behavior of yeah. atoms, said, when it comes to atoms, language can only be used as poetry. And he was dead serious when he said that. He was dead yeah. serious. Yeah. Because, because he, he said, like, you can never through logic, capture something of the essence yeah. of the behavior of, of atoms, but through poetic language and mystical language, you can. Well, even Einstein talked about the idea of his intuitive process, right? Um, Carl Jung, they did this, this the same way. They, they knew that there's something else that's connected, even though we've been trying to describe it for a long period of time. It's not just this rational idea of putting everything in a box that we can understand. I think human beings have some kind of um, a neurotic want, need or wanting to control their environment consistently, and they're willing to shove it into any kind of meaning as long as they have a meaning that seems to work for them in the moment. Um, do, does do these does a totalitarian regime do they destroy themselves out of, because it goes chaotic, like the whole system starts to go move into to utter chaos and it can't sustain itself? Is that what brings yes. them down historically? Yes, I it, it's it's. It's not easy to explain why totalitarian systems always destroy themselves. It has been observed time and time again that both the masses and totalitarian systems destroy themselves. You can explain it, and I do explain it. In my book, uh, uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, I do explain why they destroy themselves. There are numerous reasons why they do. At the psychological level, for instance, totalitarian states always believe that their ideology is the absolute truth, the total truth, and that's the, 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 the reason why sure. uh, the term totalitarianism is used, because they believe that their ideology uh, uh, provides like a total explanation for everything in the world. Um, totalitarian systems uh, impose their ideology to the population to such an extent that there is no space at all anymore uh, for the population, for the individuals, to make their own choices in life. 
to make their own decisions. Yeah. And that's, for, for instance, psychological level, that's one of the reasons why uh, totalitarian states destroy the core of humanity. Because as a human being, we feel that we exist as a human being every time we can make a choice that is truly our choice and that is not coerced or forced upon us uh, uh, by someone else. And so that's one reason at the psychological level totalitarian states always destroy the psychological energy in people, in particular the people that follow them. And, um, um, well, and even you could even say that the better and the more sophisticated the technological apparatus or the, or the machinery they have at their disposal to control the, the population, the sooner they will destroy themselves. So that's the advantage yeah. of, a, of, a, of a totalitarian system. We could think that like the technological manipulation machinery that uh, the governments now have at their disposal will give them a, a weapon uh, to, to, to create a totalitarian system that, lasts, that, that can last forever, but the opposite will be true. The more means they have at their disposal, the sooner they will destroy themselves. Okay. And um, there are numerous other reasons why they always destroy themselves. But as I said, it's quite hard to explain in a nutshell how, how this works. Yeah. Um, but so for, for instance, also... What's that? Go ahead. Well, for instance, also, like, um, totalitarian states always need new objects of anxiety. Always need new... That's something that George Orwell describes very well in 1984. That's exactly the reason why, as soon as uh, the corona narrative uh, disappeared a little bit into the background, immediately... We, we, we noticed that a new object of anxiety popped up in society, which was the war with Ukraine, or even now the monkeypox, which, uh, monkey which slowly starts to uh, come to the fore as a, as a new object of anxiety. And so totalitarian states always need a mass formation doesn't want to end. The people who are in the grip of a mass formation don't want to wake up, because if they would wake up, they would be confronted with all the misery and the stupidity and the self-destruction that happened during the mass formation. And the leaders of the masses know that the masses shouldn't wake up because otherwise they will keep them responsible and they will destroy their leaders. So everybody feels that once a large-scale mass formation set in, it usually will be the beginning of a long, a long series of mass formations, which will always indicate new objects of anxiety, try to destroy the new object, objects of anxiety, and always, in the end, uh, uh, leads to self-destructive uh, acts and behaviors. Um, and in the end, the system uh, becomes so weak, uh, becomes so exhausted, that the people who do not go along with them, if they could make sure that they were not destroyed throughout the process, which they can, if they have the courage to, to continue to speak out, suddenly will become stronger and stronger and stronger, will become stronger than uh, the masses themselves, and will uh, and then at that moment, the balance will tip and, and the, the small group that didn't go along with the masses slowly will be capable of providing an alternative way of living together uh, uh, and, and, and give rise to new principles of living together and a new, a new way to organize society that can replace the totalitarian way. Sure. Um, that, that's, by the way, that's something extremely important, I think. I think that uh this 
I was referring to René Tom and, and this, this other kind of knowledge, this resonating way to know the world, to get in touch with the world. I believe that throughout the last centuries, we started to believe that rational understanding should be um, the basis of society, decision-making in society. Um, and in this way, that's, that's I think, one of the, the core characteristics of totalitarianism. Totalitarianism always believe, believes that society should be guided, should be led on the basis of an ideological, rational understanding of the situation. Sure. But upon closer examination, you see that rationality is so limited. And that in the end, rationality is always driven from irrational forces. Lust for power, uh, uh, just uh, lust for control, and so on. And I think that history made clear that a society can actually only be led on the basis of principles, principles of humanity, ethical principles. That's also, I think, what um, we learn from if we, if we can make the switch from a radical, log uh, 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 rational, logical understanding of the world around us to a much more resonating understanding of the world around us. That's what we start to feel. We will, and what what this resonating knowledge, knowing of the world learns us, is not a logical understanding, of course, right. but we come in touch slowly with the principles of the things around us, the, the eternal principles of life. And it are these principles, these principles of humanity, the principles of life, that should be the real guiding principles of society and of human existence, I think. I and yes, I believe that. Uh, that's what the group who defies the masses, who doesn't go along with the mass formation, will slowly rediscover. They will slowly rediscover the principles of humanity, the ethical principles. Uh, we will never be able to articulate these principles in a definitive way. We always, we will always have to reinvent them time and time again. We will have to, you can feel them, uh, but you can never possess them in a definitive way. Um, but I believe that that's something we can expect everything of. Like if we can rediscover, reinvent these principles and stick to them, stay loyal to them, and the first of these principles is, I think, that as an ethical be as a as a as a human being, we have the ethical duty to continue to speak out. That's something that is mentioned in the Talmud already. Right. If you do not articulate the sincere words that emerge in you, that you feel in yourself, then you will slowly lose your soul. And also the opposite holds true. If you do articulate these words, no matter how difficult it is. No matter how difficult it is to articulate them, when, be, when, when being confronted with a group that doesn't want you to speak in a different way, if you nevertheless continue to do your best to articulate them, you will feel how a new kind of power emerges in yourself. How you, a new kind of power, which is not the power of the ego, but a much deeper, softer, more quiet power which is the power of that everyone starts to feel when he stays, when he stays loyal to ethical principles. And 
you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Solzhenitsyn, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the Russian author who wrote this wonderful book, um, uh, uh, The Gulag Archipelago. Right. And one of the things he describes in this book is how um, most, see, he wrote this book on the basis of his, uh, his uh, stay in the concentration camps of Stalin. And he describes in that book how most prisoners became radically inhumane, beast-like in the concentration camps, how they crushed each other's, each other's skulls uh, to steal each other's food, to steal each other's clothes. And, but how a small percentage, a small part of the prisoners went in exactly the opposite direction, being confronted with this pool of darkness, they decided to just stick to the principles of humanity themselves yeah. and to, who just, to just try to represent a little bit of light in this pool of darkness. Yes. And Solzhenitsyn describes how one of, in particular, one of these prisoners, a, a guy called um, Ivanovich Grigoriev, if I'm not mistaken. And he describes how this guy entered the gulags, uh, suffering from several medical conditions, uh, being sickly, but how he refused to, to, uh, to, to transgress even one ethical principle. He, if someone, if a prisoner stole his food or his clothes, he just refused to steal food and clothes them himself. If a prisoner commanded him, if a guard commanded him to do something he considered unethical, he refused no matter what the punishment was. Yeah, and yeah. Solzhenitsyn describes how this guy, during his stay in the, in the concentration camps, became stronger and stronger and stronger, physically also. And he described how while most prisoners died in a period of a few weeks to a few months, how this guy survived the concentration camps for 15 years. And Solzhenitsyn says like, you cannot understand something like that if you start from a, a materialist, mechanist view on man in the world. But as soon as you can leave this uh, redu reductionist view on man in the world, uh, behind you, you will start to open up and see how extremely important, how fundamental ethical principles and principles of humanity are for a human for a human being. And I think that is one of the things we are about to rediscover. The more we see how this so-called rational view on man in the world fails, the more we see how this unlimited belief in rational in in, in 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 the rational human mind leads to exactly the opposite to more and more irrationality to more and more destruction the more a small group will start to rediscover that the basis of human existence should not be rational understanding but that it should be ethical principles and i don't say that um uh, i i i have a hard time myself to try to find out about these ethical principles and to try to stick to them. Yeah. But I think I do understand, and that's what I describe in particular in the third part of my book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, that I do understand that this is the way we should go. We should not, we, nobody of us knows what exactly will happen in the, in the next years. Right. We nobody exactly, nobody can predict nobody. it. No, we can't predict yeah. the future. Nobody can exactly predict it. But what we can be sure of is that we will focus, that we will invest a major part of, 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 of our energy in trying to 
get in touch with principles and that we will do our best to stick to them, that we will try to do our best to stick to the principles of humanity in a world that more and more, there is more and more dehumanizing, uh, of that, be, that becomes more and more inhumane. And I think that's the way we should go. We should try to go. Yeah, I agree with um, you. I agree with you. And then I think that, you know, that was when you were talking about Solzhenitsyn, I was thinking about Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, the same thing in the, in the camps, he described the same experience, um, which is fascinating between people that are right together, you know, they're in the, they're in the horror of that together. And you have people that are dying and people that are living. And it's basically comes down to how they're choosing to think about the situation that they're in and the hierarchy of values that they contain within themselves and, and that they hold dear, you know, uh, what's, what's important um, to their soul. Anyway, I think that's a great place to leave it. I think that it gives us, I think it will give all of our viewers an idea of the role that we individually play to talk about the truth, uh, to represent an, 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 a nonviolent um, position and to consistently put out a narrative that is that is more tr true and contradicting to the one that that is causing the problem to begin with. Just one quick more question. I, something that was just nagging at me a little bit. You talked about they will they'll constantly have more objects of anxiety. Do you think, or is there any historical evidence that the people within the mass formation will create those objects of anxiety if, say, the government doesn't create them or doesn't create them fast enough. Like if yes. they will, it can. It can uh, either the the leaders of the masses can create the objects of anxiety or the masses can create them themselves. Uh, that uh, happens sometimes in the one direction, sometimes in the other direction. Um, I'm wondering uh, if that's with it, with all the individual violence that's starting to pop up that we're seeing, especially in the United States, we've got school shootings, we've got mass shootings, we've got people getting in fights in airports, on airplanes, and in all different kinds of scenarios we're hearing, I don't know if it's just that we're hearing more about it, or if, and I was just thinking to myself, you know, the people would be so addicted to this kind of um, uh, behavior, uh, if it if it wasn't provided by whoever they were following would they actually start doing something themselves to because like you said they don't want to go back they don't want to not have this narrative to follow in their life no they they they, they in, in certain cases they will definitely start to to to, uh, to create them themselves absolutely okay. just because that's a problem with mass formation um people go along with the masses and they buy into the narratives because in one way or another they have the feeling that it will free them from their loneliness that it will give them a new kind of meaning making that it will free them from their anxiety that it will free them from um, from um, uh, their frustration and aggression but exactly the opposite happens of course there after after a period of mass formation people feel even more lonely just because the mass formation did not create a new bond with other individuals. It only created a very strong loyalty to the collective. And the longer mass formation lasts, the more people feel lonely. That's exactly why, uh, for instance, at university, students and personnel are allowed to come to university again, and they were complaining during the lockdowns that they felt lonely. 
when yeah. having to work from home. But now that you are allowed to come back, they don't come back. Only it's 5% comes right? back. Now, that, that's exactly what I predicted that before in the beginning of the in the beginning of the crisis. And also now that people can go again to theaters and movies and so on, they don't go. They're not going. They are, they are, it's empty. So meaning that, as I just explained, the mass formation destroys the last social bonds. And after a mass formation, there is even more loneliness, even more frustration, even more aggression. And typically, to solve that, people participate in a new mass formation, which makes it even worse. And that continues in this way uh, uh, until uh, finally uh, everything is destroyed or, they, or, the, or the masses are completely exhausted. Uh, but so... And they're not going back to work either. No, they are not. Everybody, no. I, I'm in business. Everybody I talk to in business, the biggest complaint that they have is they can't find people to work. Oh. Like there's no, there's no people, there's no employees, there's no people to hire. Exactly. No one work. Exactly. You, you know, I challenge everyone to look at my, at my videos and podcasts that I made in the beginning of the, okay. of the Corona crisis. Many people told me. You all pre you predicted many of these things. Yes, I did. That's exactly what I said. You will see. It won't. <laughs> it won't say. It won't. It won't free us from the problem. Of course not. It will make it worse. Yeah. And yeah. For sure. All right. Well, listen. I think we should end it there. I want. I want to encourage everybody to get uh, to get your book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. This is my copy. Uh, that's a that's a, a pre-authorized copy that came out. Um, you say about three weeks. You think it'll be available? Yes. Uh, yes. Yes, okay. it, it, it can be pre-ordered now, I think, but pre um, the, the paper copies will be available, if I'm not mistaken, June 23rd or something. So, Great, uh, perfect. No. perfect. All right, well, it was a real honor to have you, and thank you so much for your contribution, because uh, this is just amazing, and I think that everybody needs to hear this. Oh, so thank thank you, you very much, David, for inviting me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to the Successful Mind Podcast. And if you like what you heard and you want to know more, go to davidnagel.com forward slash free stuff.